0: Welcome to the Voices in Recovery podcast. Voices in Recovery is produced by Freedom's Path Recovery Society, a registered Canadian charity. If you enjoy the podcast,
1: please consider a donation at www.freedomspathrecoverysociety.ca.
0: All donations go directly to assisting Freedom's Path in providing services free of charge and helps us keep the podcast going. We are grateful for any and all donations. This podcast discusses difficult topics such as childhood abuse, drug and alcohol use, sexuality, sexualized trauma, and more. If you are under the age of 18, please speak with your legal guardian prior to listening. The opinions expressed during the podcast are those of the individual, and not those of Voices in Recovery or Freedom's Path Recovery Society. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the podcast.
1: This podcast is being recorded on the traditional land of the Blackfoot Confederacy. This consists of the Kainai, Pekani, Siksika, and the Black
2: Sea in the U.S. We acknowledge the Stony Nakoda, which consists of the Bearsclaw, Morley, and Shunuki. We acknowledge the
1: Satina who are Dene, and the Métis, Inuit, status, and non-status from all of Turtle Island, and those who are visiting. We are all treated people.
0: So, Danielle, thank you for coming. You're welcome. So, I don't even know all of the things you're involved in. Okay. And- Part of why I wanted you to come on, because I know you're involved in a lot of stuff, um, and we were just talking about community-wise and how kind of cool it is here, and mm-hmm. I, I couldn't imagine, like, having a better guest. like Because, the, well, the first time we came in to tour to see the the space that we might rent, I saw you. Like, was that you, for,
1: so it must have been Tuesday then, for Reconnect? It was Reconnex.
0: Tuesday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it was the first time, for one of the first people I saw when I walked in the door with you.
1: Oh, no way. Yeah. I'm easy to, I'm, I'm not hard to, spot. like, I'm easy to spot. You don't mm-hmm. miss me, so. Oh, no, and you're
0: very friendly and, and <laughs> like, helpful. Like, uh, one of the reasons I love it here is because of that, right? There's yeah. There's so many people that just want to be useful.
1: Totally. To it's like a other. community vibe. Yeah. I really like anything that's, like, community, grassroots. Mm-hmm. I don't really like clinical settings, and mm-hmm. I really like that community-wise doesn't feel like that. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Too. Yeah, because we're not clinical at all. Mm-mm. Obviously not. Um, that would be, like, against our grain for sure.
1: Totally. Yeah. Me as well. And I think clinical resources don't get used because they feel stale. Mm-hmm. I think, like, the homies want to be in community-wise. Yeah. It just feels like, you know, like someone's, ex- like, huge kitchen and living mm-hmm. room or something. That's r- yeah,
0: totally. Because everybody in the kitchen, I went in to get water. Like, everyone's just there. Like, yeah. You know what I mean? It's not a, it's not a, a certain... I mean, obviously, we want to respect each other using the space, of course. But it was just, like... Everything was cool. Mm-hmm. I, and it's so different because we used to rent space at churches, right? And, oh, yeah. And because uh, I'm not Christian, mm-hmm. it was, didn't make any sense anymore to be there, mm-hmm. first of all lots of harm happens through the church
1: well and that's a hard thing yeah. is that churches are a space that often get used by grassroots group mm-hmm. because they're cheap yeah. and they're usually like central
2: yeah.
1: um and i've had that dilemma as well where it's like i don't want to put anything for the community out of a church because mm-hmm. then that cuts off the indigenous community because why would they want to use a, res- a, a resource that's like colonial mm-hmm. and religious that's not safe for them right away queer community queer community yeah. bang on yeah. so yeah yeah drug users you yes, know so and the drug culture too absolutely yeah. so yeah i love that this isn't a
0: church mm-hmm.
1: you can't really say like burn churches and then run your group out of it you know like i
0: can't we, be we, who we I tried am. <laughs> we tried <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> that's funny you say that cuz i think didn't i just say we don't condone that sort of thing <laughs> yeah wait condone was the wrong word though <laughs> um so, yeah, tell us yeah. about yourself, please. Okay,
1: so I like to identify as a harm reduction advocate.
0: Okay.
1: Um, and then I also like to identify as somebody who has lived experience. So mm-hmm. I'm really open and honest about the fact that I have a personality disorder. Mm-hmm. I have borderline personality disorder. I speak about it openly, and I think it's important to. Um, I'm also a person who uses drugs, who has used drugs. Mm-hmm. I have a deep history with drug use. Um, and yeah, now I do a lot of harm reduction advocacy, Mm -hmm. so for me, and I, I am really open about this, working on the front lines every single day, for me, very quickly became unsafe for my own mental health. Mm -hmm. Um, I have poor boundaries sometimes in that area, and I was finding it really hard to shut off. And, um, I wanted to stay in the harm reduction world and continue to work in harm reduction, mm. but in a way that was grounded because I was finding that I was almost in this like hypermanic state mm. when I was working daily outreach, I think, cause I was constantly being triggered in situations mm. and then sort of almost running on that adrenaline. Mm. And I think when you like step back and like talk to yourself about your own, like, Inner like motives. I was realizing like it it just wasn't safe for me to do it every day like that, um, and to also work in an organization. So I think that nonprofits, especially right now, are experiencing a really interesting time where the workers can't do the kind of work that they want and still get funding. So I think there's a lot of really cool social workers out there and doctors and people who would love to be giving safe supply, uh, working at inhalation spaces, working at overdose prevention sites. But those things don't happen in Alberta and they're not legal in Alberta. And so the kind of work that they can do is very much bound by who they get their funding from. So I was working for a program and it was heavily paired up with police. That never feels safe for me. That never feels good for me. I started getting into more like advocacy and um, like speaking and stuff like that. And I couldn't say anything. I couldn't be outright critical of the government. I couldn't call the drug crisis genocide. I couldn't say that police weren't a good resource. And so I ended up sort of leaving my outreach job and moving my outreach into a volunteer basis on my terms. So I'm lucky because my employer is really cool and really supportive and also works in harm reduction. Oh, nice. So I've got a side gig that pays my bills that I work hard, I work hard on, mm-hmm. but it allows me to have a lot of free time to do advocacy work and volunteer work. So right now I volunteer at the Reconnects program with AWARE every Tuesday. Um, my employer has a sort of another coalition called Each and Every. Mm-hmm which um, basically calls on the business world to support the entire community Mm -hmm. to step up and get naloxone trained, carry naloxone, Mm -hmm. be a safe, protective space. So we funnel work through that and um, we do a lot of um, sort of grassroots outreach style. Mm -hmm. Um, So I, I do some sort of warming tents all over um, where we're just like on a grassroots level throwing up a tent providing basic wound care Mm -hmm. providing harm reduction supplies we try to run those once a week Mm -hmm. Um, and then i work with 4b um, which is a harm reduction group out in edmonton a lot of my work right now is with them Um, there's a project called the curbside philosophy so 4b is an organization where um angie stains she's a nurse and her son brandon was houseless and um on opioids mm-hmm. and she was looking for him and, and and working with him and so she created 4b for brandon mm-hmm. and uh, yeah it's super super cool and it's super yeah. rad and she works her ass off mm-hmm. and they're doing grassroots street level um outreach for the community mm-hmm. And Brandon's actually doing really well. He was actually able to get on a methadone program. Um, He's housed, he's crushing it. And now he's come up with the curbside philosophy, which is basically bringing um, the unhoused voice to everybody Mm -hmm. uh, in a way that's not exploitative. So I think we're starting to see more of these like video style projects because that's where we've gone as a culture. And I think that they are great, I also think they can be expredi- incredibly exploitative. Mm-hmm. So we're not really interested in any like shots of people p- suffering poisonings, yeah. shots of people using drugs, you know, your typical like needle in a gutter thing. Mm-hmm. More we're interviewing people who just want to talk about their experience using resources mm-hmm. and what they think can be done to create political change. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a really cool way to give advocacy to the community. Yeah. So we've been working on that out in Edmonton. I've been going back and forth and we've been doing that for a while. And then, yeah, I sit on a lot of um, different caucuses and I talk about mental health Mm -hmm. and I talk about using drugs. Um, I find that those are where my skills are is sort of with advocacy and with like public speaking. So I've tried to focus my work on that while still staying grounded and doing outreach because Mm -hmm. I think it's so important to do outreach. But I think we can also be honest about our own limitations within the community without being shamed, you know? I think
0: it's essential, to be honest. I, and yeah. I wish there was less shame involved when people mm-hmm. do come forward and say, no, that's too much. Right?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And, and I think that does speak to our culture, our work culture in general. Totally. Right? That we're just not, maybe some people just aren't willing to be like, you know what, like, it's totally okay. There's a mm-hmm. whole reason why we have EAP programs, right? Mm-hmm. And, and almost every large organization has something like that totally but then of course people are afraid to use it
1: yeah well identifying as someone with a mental illness Mm -hmm. um, yeah for a long time you know I remember when I got diagnosed with a personality disorder the first thing my mom said and my mom's a social worker Mm -hmm. so she's liberal she's cool but the first thing she said is like make sure you don't tell anybody Mm -hmm. and that came from a place of her genuinely not wanting me to experience stigma and um, persecution Mm -hmm. and so I love her for that I've done the opposite of that um, because mm-hmm. I think it's really important that we start to identify these things as, as things that people are dealing with every single day. Like You definitely know someone who's experiencing mental health oh, and yeah. the idea that people who use drugs and people who experience mental health um, are like erratic and unemployable and angry and uneducated, I think that's uh, super not true and I think that's something that we do so that we can take the voice away from those people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, i tr- I always try to be really open about it, but I also want to acknowledge that that's a privilege I have. I don't have children. So I know a lot of really cool advocates who can identify as openly as I do because mm-hmm. they could get their children taken away, yeah. you know, for speaking as a person who uses drugs for speaking about these things. So, and I have safe employment for the first time, you know, I'm 33. It's taken me until now to have employment that was safe. That was, that I could be open about my mental health. Mm-hmm so i think that's another reason too is like we say that we support mental health in this culture but we do as long as it doesn't get away and it, it, as long as it doesn't get in front of the real thing that we support which is capitalism mm-hmm. so like you can be mentally ill but like you're still working five days a week
0: mm-hmm. <laughs> well you could be an activist as long as you're not too angry 100 percent. right
1: yeah you can be a woman as long as you're not too loud that's right <laughs> right yeah. so we experience those things on lots mm-hmm. of different levels mm-hmm. and i think I was talking about this the other day. People who are mentally ill and people who do use drugs are a group that is always silenced because anything that we say can be written off as hysterical. Anything that we say. Drug induced. Totally. Yep.
0: Yeah. Totally. Yeah. So. I remember, and sorry, I don't want to. No, jump you off. in.
1: Jump in. I, I just
0: remember when I first. I must have been like four or five years sober. I don't drink alcohol anymore. All right. Um, but I have no opinion on anything like that. Like, mm-hmm. literally. Part of the reason why I found that people are... One of the problems I find with the sober culture is the unwillingness to be open to harm reduction, right? Mm-hmm. And so I'm harm reduction. am also I'm also BPD.
2: Mm-hmm. Sick!
0: Right? Cool! And, and I have a safe employment, just like you're describing. Mm-hmm. And I know that's not for everybody, mm-hmm. right? Um, and that not everyone can be that open. Mm-hmm. But I think that's why it's so important for those of us who can be to be open. I agree. Right? Because how are we going to change the perception of the culture if we're not, mm-hmm. right? Like if doctors and social workers and, and whatever else, if we can't be honest about the struggles we go through and, but part of why we can't be honest is because it's been made to uh, be less than, right? Mm-hmm. So you're not quite as good as a social worker if you're also drinking or using drugs. Mm-hmm. You're not as good as an outreach worker if you're you doing those things. Um, but that's only if, our intention is to make everybody the same,
2: mm-hmm.
0: right? And that's the trouble, I think, with like the, obviously, our government is sh- Ooh. out to lunch, yeah. right? But they want to paint everything with a brush, right? Mm-hmm. And and I that's where I have found the limitations of the abstinence-based culture, right? Like, and don't get me wrong, when I first sobered up, it was like, Barrr! but then what happened? Life happened. I started to experience my friends dying. I started to experience the things that, I wasn't paying attention to when I was out there drinking. Now it's in my face, and I'm like, "Yeah, this is not working." Like abstinence is not the only thing. Like for some people, great. Mm-hmm. I would wager a guess though, and this is just me throwing out shit. Um, but I would wager a guess though that like abstinence is probably only great for people who are 100% abstinent and miserable. Like I'm. Yeah, just,
1: and also probably white and rich.
0: Potentially, all of those <laughs> things are true, right? And, you know, and in a in a very firm bubble of privilege right which is where I come from a firm bubble of privilege yeah but and that's why I think it's important to let that go Mm -hmm. right and to unpack that um as my friend Michelle said earlier just to start unpacking those things as to how it how it came to be that I was so rigid at one point right because now I'm the opposite of rigid and it's it wasn't like it was a process it was like instant as Mm -hmm. soon as like my really good friend died of an overdose um and I was like five or six years sober, something like that. I was done with abstinence. I just, because I watched that friend, specifically that person, go over and over and over again trying to get abstinence, right? And everyone had taken away his option. Well, this happens in the 12-step fellowship sometimes. People take away your option to, like, be human, right? And so, of course, that creates pressure. And for an addict, when we're already shamed, by culture at large, now we're even being shamed by our small community, right, Mm -hmm. of abstinence-based thinkers. Like there was this thing, and and it still makes me laugh when I think about it, but someone posted online about how they're more sober than you, and that's Mm -hmm. because they're just more sober than you. And, And they were so like, it was so arrogant, right, to think that we should be able to tell other people how they should live, right? It's one of those things that I think We just take for granted when we're in our bubble of privilege, right? Mm -hmm. We just, yeah.
1: Yeah. I'm, I'm so glad you brought this up. And I really had hoped that this is what we were going to talk about. So, mm-hmm. like, funny universe moment for me. I think maybe this is probably why the person who recommended me did. Because, mm-hmm. yeah, I am so against abstinence-based programming. Mm-hmm. I say all of the time that I believe that that would have killed me sooner than mm-hmm. actually toxic drug supply. Mm-hmm. And so, I... And, 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 you know, I come from a 12-step background. I was in the rooms of AA and NA when mm-hmm. I was, like, 15. Like, my problem... Um, for me, uh, I'm a chronic relapser and, uh, I didn't get diagnosed with my mental health stuff until much later on in life. Mm-hmm. And so there was a long time when I didn't know what was happening. I didn't know what I was experiencing. Mm-hmm. And I got into AA very quickly as a young person. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I honestly, I think it's an incredibly Predatory program. If you're a woman, oh my god, um, hundred yeah. percent. I, I always want to talk about young women in AA because I remember mm-hmm. I was sitting in AA rooms at like sixteen, and back back then it, it was very male dominant. Like there might have been three or four other women in the group. It's and shifting, but
0: it's still it's yeah, misogynistic yeah, for sure. Yeah, and
1: you know just like the amount of like old older men that that mm-hmm. drove me home and drove me places when I was that age. Mm-hmm when it's just, like, that's not appropriate. Like, I look at that as a 30-year-old woman now, and, like, why was I talking about my relationship's problems with a 55-year-old man? Like, that's not okay. Mm. But also, the other thing about AA or NA or any of those programs um, that really, really bothers me is just the gross egotistical hierarchy. Of people who don't, who the program isn't right for, and you know, there's that line where they say like, some people are sicker than most, and that's what they say about people who the program doesn't work for them. That's right. And that's supposed to be their empathetic. Like, I know they say that like they're proud of that. They're like, oh, it's okay. Give them empathy. Some people are just sicker than most, and it's like, <laughs> whoa. The, like, way,
0: the way you're saying that is like just setting off so many buttons. Yeah, yeah, like they
1: they have this like pseudo idea that they're being like loving and kind. Mm-hmm and they're saying like oh feel bad for that poor lying soul that can't surrender like you Mm -hmm. but it's like so offensive Mm -hmm. and like for me my mental health is all around shame Mm -hmm. and so i always wanted to please people i wanted to please my parents i wanted to please my boyfriend i wanted to please my friends i wanted to please everybody because i wanted to feel worthy Mm -hmm. so i come into this group of validation Where all these people are saying, like, you can be our star and we will be there for you. You just have to do what we say. Just conform. Totally. Mm -hmm. And then when I couldn't do what they said, holy shit, I hated myself. Mm -hmm. Every time, like, for me, like, the counting days and stuff, like, ooh, like, I would relapse and I would be like, wow, 303 days is gone. Mm -hmm. I will never get it back. I'm a waste I should just end my life. And so I believe that that shame spiral would have caused me to commit suicide before my extreme drug use would have taken Mm -hmm. me. Because what happened was 15 years of hidden use. You know, the amount of times that I've overdosed in my apartment alone, Mm -hmm. you know, at the end of of some of my use, I was having um, seizures. So withdrawal related seizures. Mm -hmm. Alone in my apartment because I couldn't tell anybody in my life that I had relapsed because I felt so devastated Mm -hmm. and I was still going to the rooms. Mm -hmm. So I would like pull myself together and go to the rooms and then go home and use alone in shame, Mm -hmm. hating myself. And I just will never like I look back at that experience now and I'm so sad for that young girl. Like she was trying so hard and she was doing her best, and it just wasn't the right thing for her, mm-hmm. you know. Like I had a mental health, and and constantly people would always say to me, like, "You're just not surrendering to your higher power." Oh my god! But I really just had complex PTSD, man. Well, I needed to go to a psychiatrist. Yeah,
0: but see, that's a, that's another limitation. We don't talk
1: about that.
0: Another limitation of the rooms, right? Is the the negative slant that lots of folks in the rooms have give. on
1: therapy yeah
0: any kind of outside help right totally and and one of the things that's interesting about that to me is in the literature it talks about needing outside help but when it comes to translation into people no mm-hmm. like it which is so baffling to me mm-hmm. when I first came in when I first sobered up and went to my first few meetings I noticed right away that there was this like limitation in the roots right like totally. a super limitation so for me it wasn't that complicated but that's because I was privileged I mm-hmm. was able to like sit there not drink, and be like, okay, I can kind of see what's happening. But of course, I wasn't a 15-year-old girl, mm-hmm. right? I'm not a girl. So mm-hmm. I'm sitting in this room in my bubble of privilege, recognizing how like, oh, all I have to do is not drink, and everything will be fine, and then things will get better. But what really happened was I started to see the limitations of not the, um, the literature aspect of things there's so many so many limitations with that mm-hmm. like, I also
1: know. bill and bob were on acid when they wrote the big bug
0: well, yeah, why we, don't we ever talk about you that can't, you can't talk to aa people about that <laughs> Woo! Like, right? sorry
1: to blow your mind yeah. if you don't know that one but like when they were making those home invasion style interventions mm-hmm. which i look at a lot differently now when they were just going into people's houses and taking them mm-hmm. um they were high on acid man the whole time
0: well, and now they're talking, our government's talking about doing the same thing, Whoa. being able to take people, right?
1: Yeah, we got to talk about that. For
0: sure. Like, it, like to me, it's all, it's all interconnected because this philosophy of abstinence only, or you're going to be shamed. Like, you can't do harm reduction because that's like, you're still using. You're
1: enabling.
0: You're enabling. This is enabling behavior. Not everything that's helpful to people is enabling, mm-hmm. first of all. and Also, we,
1: love and support are human needs as well yeah. and I can love you and support you and still uphold my own boundaries
0: that's the trick like right there. I can
1: still that's mm-hmm. the thing is like what we don't want to talk about as a society is a boundary is not you have to stop doing this or I won't talk to you yes. a boundary is hey I can't be around this and this, it's not safe for me, so Mm -hmm. when these things come up, I have to leave. And it's your responsibility to implement it, and it Mm -hmm. also doesn't mean that love is taken away. No. Or, or support or an open door, you know? Mm-hmm. You know how many friends when I would uh, I couldn't call because I know they would say the AA thing of like, I can't talk to you until you get well again. Mm-hmm. So that meant a lot of suffering oh alone. Oh my God,
0: the way you said that, like literally reminds me of something I just heard from someone, mm-hmm. almost identical.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we don't really like, yeah, like even even the idea of, of AA, I remember my therapist told me this. So everyone talks about AA because they go and they have these shares and it's supposed to be a cathartic experience, mm-hmm. right? Well, Catharsism doesn't actually exist scientifically. It's never been proven to actually be true, this idea that we talk about something heavy and then we feel better. What we do know to be true is that when we do that, for some people who have CPTSD, they're binding themselves to their trauma and constantly getting re-triggered. So every time they're talking about this horrific thing, Mm -hmm. it's not making them feel better, it's actually bringing them back Mm -hmm. to that place and keeping them in that hyper-state of trauma. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the other piece that, like, I've seen AA shares that should be with a therapist and a therapist only. Oh God, It's not safe for women to be talking about their sexual assaults, Mm -hmm. or men, I don't want to only just focus on women, but that's not safe, and that's not safe for everybody else too. You know, for us to be, I've also seen shares where people are clearly in a religious psychosis and they're being validated for it. People are going like, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And you're like, no, this sounds like maybe you need to talk to a psychiatrist. And that's with Mm -hmm. no judgment. I've experienced psychosis. But I worry about the unregulation of the rooms. Mm -hmm. Anyone can say anything and there's no follow-up. Oh,
0: and they do. There's no, not only is there no follow-up, but there's no consequence.
1: Totally. Right,
0: and in some cases, as you're pointing out, the consequences are dire for people.
1: Absolutely. Because
0: they're they're more of like that that subtle consequence of shame, right? That's mm-hmm. that subtle everyday getting reinforced that what you're doing is wrong mm-hmm. or what you're doing is right, mm-hmm. and you get that validation. Like I I made a I thought it was a pretty funny joke about Jesus in a meeting, and like nobody laughed. I bet you Jesus had a sense of
1: humor. Yeah. Fuck. Well, and they right? have no senses of humor. And yeah. here's the other thing too, man. If you have to go to your program for the rest of your life for it to be successful, that sounds like a bad program. Well, like it's, programs it's, are supposed to have ends.
0: And that's the only. That's what the only thing that you can say about it is that you don't have to pay and you can just keep going forever.
1: Yeah, but right. uh, you know, uh, that might check off in your box that yeah. that's what you're doing. Yeah. You know, you know how many people are in the rooms that are also engaging in like very risky sexual behavior as well, you yeah. know, on both sides of the coin mm-hmm. because once people stop drinking, if they don't take a look at the other things mm-hmm. with a therapist, not Joe from down the street.
0: Oh my god, it's just um, so crazy how old people yeah. listen to people, yeah.
1: it, it is scary and yeah. I worry about, you know, any of these Places where there can be positions of power. So police, even social work. But Mm -hmm. even in AA, you know, whoever your sponsor is, is giving you their unfiltered opinions and biases on everything. Mm -hmm. But they're telling you that it's not an opinion. They're telling you that it's fact. And if you don't do it, you're Mm going to die. Yeah. And that can be really overwhelming when you're searching for something to help. Well,
0: that and on top of that, if you misbehave while you're trying to be sober, then you have people shaming you for your behavior. Totally. Because obviously you're just a sober horse thief, as they say, mm-hmm. right? And if you're a sober horse thief, oh man, we can't do nothing. You need to get well,
2: mm-hmm. right?
0: Well, that's assuming you're well, right? That person's well. And totally. it's, it's like at a certain point, I stopped assuming that in the rooms, right? But good. again, I had a bubble of privilege. I was able to just sit there. I had my dad who was a really good friend. He was in recovery and he was one of my best friends. And so I got to learn stuff that wasn't shared in those rooms. Mm -hmm. about just being compassionate to each other and just like accepting everyone, like regardless. Mm -hmm. And this is when it, but when it shifted was, I just, I had heard an old timer um, try to tell me that it was my responsibility if somebody else committed suicide. Right. Yeah,
1: like this is the kind of stuff that yeah. I'm talking about that makes yeah. me want the entire thing shut down. I, I get it. I and totally it's controversial, yeah. you know, and it's not a winning, of, and, and I never want to be too blunt because I don't want people to think people in harm reduction don't believe in recovery. because Harm I absolutely, reduction is recovery. Yeah, but it's also that recovery looks different for everybody. Yeah. And it's also that, the privilege of recovery as well you know Mm -hmm. regular group therapy regular you Mm -hmm. know acupuncture massage all these things that happen after you come out of trauma you know that you need like our bodies are wiped Mm -hmm. all of those things come at a price tag it also like even even the time to take off to go to treatment you know I remember just having massive gaps in my resume Mm -hmm. from the times when I was trying to get well, you know, and for people who benefit from nepotism, you know, it's Mm -hmm. like maybe they can go away to a year program and then come back and their dad's going to hire them Mm -hmm. at their company and they're going to be a lawyer and it's going to be fine, man. But for me, my 20s has been such an up and down thing that I don't have the things that a regular 30 year old would have. You know, I don't have diplomas. I don't have long term history. It, it's that much more of a battle to just stay uphill as it is, mm-hmm. you know? And of course, you can change your life at any time, but that's also something that's privileged to say, yeah. too, because you gotta pay your bills, man. Mm-hmm. And so I think
0: yeah, you can change your life at any time. If you've got like a donor,
1: of course, yeah. yeah. Like I think if we were all put in a perfect situation, mm-hmm. everybody could live the exact way, but we're denying all the different hands that we're all dealt, mm-hmm. all the different cards that we're all dealt. And mm-hmm. like I say to people, if that worked for you and you were able to do mm-hmm. that, that's so, so great. But that's not everybody's experience. Not and even close. Not everybody has the same levels of trauma. And, yeah. and I don't like to compare everyone's pain is everyone's pain. Mm-hmm. But there are different, like, intergenerational trauma. Mm-hmm. There is... And also, like, who from, like, the Indigenous community feels safe in an AA room? Like, take a look around your AA rooms, mm-hmm. you know? Are they, like, a really diverse version of people? Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe they're a little bit better now, more but... And more
0: now than ever, but... But like, I would still I say if we took the numbers,
1: from. they were 70 to 80%, even now,
0: white. Mm. Oh, yeah. And because and, it
1: is a Christian program.
0: Well, and that that's another point of contention, right, is that... It, it talks about not being Christian focused, but if you read the literature, they're both Christians, right? So Absolutely. There was nothing else they could provide. They provided a little like excerpt or something on, um, on an indigenous nation down in the northeast of the United States. Can't remember which indigenous nation it mm-hmm. was, but they, I believe, this is just one of those things because I was like a Christian when I brought up Christian, so but I am far from that now. It's, it's one of those once you see the truth, you realize what you've been doing, right? Yeah. And then you realize, okay, I can change. And yeah. I've got new information. I'm going to stop doing that, right? Because yeah. it's Because they,
1: they, they do say that, right? That's their whole thing. You know, it's a god of your understanding. But what yeah. I always say to people who have, who don't understand religious trauma The blurb at the end doesn't matter when there's the God there. You know, if you're coming in and your parents were in residential school Mm -hmm. where they were, like, raped and beaten and stripped of their culture. And
0: potentially killed.
1: Absolutely. And let's not forget, like, prohibition was targeted against the Indigenous culture, Mm -hmm. and so is the opioid crisis. Mm -hmm. It is genocide against that community. Mm -hmm. We know that. And you're coming into this program, the nice little, of your understanding, Mm -hmm. doesn't matter when you see that trigger word of God. Mm -hmm. That's enough right there to shut down. And so you should.
0: And and if you if you're aware of like the Judeo-Christian beginnings of the program and of some of the the work that people rely on, so there's this little excerpt that comes out that's read at some meetings called On Awakening. Oh yeah, awakening, yeah, I've heard right? this one. You remember this one? I do. So in that, it only mentions the Abrahamic religions. Mm-hmm. So like and I make a point every time I read it to read it with more than that because it's like no, if you have an an elder, an imam, mm-hmm. like there's all kinds of like uh, what do they call, um you, you have a medicine person, whatever it is Absolutely. that you get your fill from, that's where you should go. Totally. Also that whole thing is misogynist, right? Like Absolutely. And, and as a bisexual man, there's no such thing as like safety in there. None. Right? None. Like it's
1: I, I think identifying as a bisexual man, and this might be the only time I say this, from the male standpoint, is actually maybe one of the most dangerous things you can identify as. It's very tricky. As far as putting you open towards violence. I think people hate bisexual men. Mm-hmm. So I respect you a lot for, for saying that, but I can't imagine navigating that in in the rooms.
0: It's tricky because, well, and first of all, like what you pointed out there is there is like a, an opening of more kinds of violence and like in terms of, uh, bigotry and stuff totally from both sides right? totally internalized yeah.
1: homophobia as well Yeah,
0: of course right and and the fact that it's just so even as a bisexual man It's hard to understand Of So course. if you're not familiar with that you would have no idea you mm-hmm. would think it's fucking crazy, right? Mm-hmm. Like as mm-hmm. we are called all the time mm-hmm. that this is some sort of this is wh- why it was so hard to be out mm-hmm. Right. I haven't I've only been openly in the room. I've been sober for 19 plus years right? Wow, but only open for about a year and a half. Good for you. Right, but that's it. Took me eighteen years, yeah. almost, just to get through, trying to make sure everyone was okay with me. And then finally, it was just like the levy broke,
2: mm-hmm. and
0: it was. But it doesn't mean there still there aren't people in there that don't want it, right? Oh yeah. And that's the pushback. Yeah.
1: And that's the thing I think is like the the people that don't want it and aren't accepting in the rooms are usually the loudest and they're usually very open about their blatant disgust, you know, mm-hmm. and I find, you know, we, we give them this pass because often they're old timers mm-hmm. and we have this idea of like, oh, haha, like that tough love and like tough love does not work. Mm-hmm. Like it is demeaning, it is degrading. It centers you away from yourself, not mm-hmm. inside of yourself. Um, it, it, yeah, I, I, I'm really against any sort of tough love mm-hmm. mentality. Um, and I think that we give them that pass because they've they've been sober for thirty years, so I they must. Yeah, minute. and it's yeah. like, okay, well, be a good person. Mm-hmm.
0: Like, it's pretty fucking simple.
1: Yeah, and 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 there isn't really. That's what worries me is there's no one looking in or moderating those rooms. And I'm not. I'm fuck censorship. Obviously, you guys mm-hmm. have heard me talk for like this long. You know, I don't agree with that. Mm-hmm. But there is something to be said for the safety in a therapeutic environment. Mm-hmm. You know. You can't just be like openly triggering people and then people, like if someone shares something is that is something that's repressed for you and now you're reliving mm-hmm. this because of that share at a time that you're not ready to mm-hmm. in a room with no support and then going home full of all of that, mm-hmm. that scares me for people from a mental health standpoint. Oh yeah,
0: and and that's another thing, like the mental health aspect of this. When we talk about the, those kinds of rooms, those mm-hmm. I'll just say twelve step fellowships because yeah, they're mostly yeah. similar. Right? I, I don't
1: want to pick one out over the other. I, I am not a fan of any.
0: Yeah, and and, and I'm I'm less of a fan every day, yeah. right? Um, and the more I study it, read the literature, the less of a fan, right? Mm-hmm. And and a lot of it's just me coming to what I already mm-hmm. kind of thought, right? Mm-hmm. Like in terms of mental health, this is a big one in the rooms. Um, is there is no mental health, okay? You are an alcoholic. Yeah. I've heard people
1: be told not to take their meds. I've heard that come out of people's mouths. I've heard people's sponsors say they're not sober because of that. I know that happens. Yep. It happens
0: every day. And and it's frustrating. And you're right. Sometimes it is the old timers who everybody in the room looks up to. So when Mm -hmm. they say this stuff. But that was the first thing. Like the the old timer that said I would be responsible for someone else taking their life. I, I believe I've also heard them talk about in the beginning. Not taking meds and other old timers when I first came in talking about that. But as a social worker, I was like, "That's so stupid. Mm-hmm. Who are these people that would say that?" Right? Mm-hmm. Like to actually think that you have the audacity as a as a person who is now sober from alcohol, but you have the audacity to say the doctors are wrong. Mm-hmm. Like that. There's no such. This is like I've had this conversation with with old timers before about like schizophrenia and um, borderline personality, mm-hmm. bipolar. Anything, right? Uh, that there's like certain things that are off in the brain. That's why, like, and by off, I just mean they're just not the same as others. Right?
1: It's different on a brain scan. Yeah. We have different sized parts of our brain. Yeah. You know, we have overactive and underactive parts. Like, mm-hmm. it's just a fact. Yeah. And it's also compounded trauma as well, really? you know? Yeah. I remember thinking so much of my behavior as a teenager was hysterical because that's how it was portrayed Mm -hmm. to me. And now as a 30 year old woman, I look at that behavior and I'm like, okay, you're screaming and cutting yourself every day. That seems really a lot, Mm -hmm. but what was happening? okay, you were being sexually assaulted by your older boyfriend to support his drug use Mm -hmm. and your drug use at a time when you had no ability to say no or advocate for yourself. And when you were talking about it, people were telling you that you were making it up for attention. Mm -hmm. So you got really loud and you hurt yourself so people would listen. Mm -hmm. And I'm not angry at that girl at all. Mm -hmm. I'm like, wow, that makes so much sense that you were trying to cope that way. I'm so sorry no one was listening to you. But I think in AA, it made everything my fault. Yeah. Like even the, the steps, you know, for me, writing out all of the things that people have done and then your part in it. And like, yeah. I, I had a sponsor who, for me, a lot of the, my experiences were sexual assault as a young person. Mm-hmm. And so writing that out with just like another 18 year old girl and her telling me like, okay, yeah, obviously this wasn't your fault, but like, what did you do wrong? And I would have to think and think and be like, well, I guess, I should have let it go and I kept carrying on about it and I drank over it. And she'd be like, yeah, that's the lesson. And it's like, whoa, man, no, like, I'm not at fault <laughs> for fuck. grieving my experience as I age, you know, the, yeah. the, the, like how everything gets flipped back on the person in AA, yeah. I think is good for some people who maybe don't take accountability, mm-hmm. but I'm somebody who feels bad about everything I do. Mm-hmm. I actually need to give myself grace and mm-hmm. forgiveness And the allowance to experience things, you know, in AA, it's like, now you've done your eight and you're over those things. Your amends have been made. Don't think about them again. But then for me, after I would do that, I would just feel really bad and really sick. And in some cases, when I'd reach out to do my amends with people, people who weren't safe, Mm -hmm. it would open back up that unsafe relationship. Mm -hmm. Like how many men did I meet with to make amends? that I should have been staying away from, you mm-hmm. know? And to go and say, like, I played a role in this as well. That's beautiful and great, I guess. You do play a role in everything, but I also didn't need to be meeting with the abusers to say that, yeah. you know? That's yeah. not safe either.
0: It's, it's incredibly unsafe, mm-hmm. and, I, and I, I, I agree. There's just so much, like, when they listen to you talk about it, it's just so obviously unsafe. Right? Yeah. Like, it's such an unsafe thing to put someone who's been victimized by other people back in their presence. It's mm-hmm. unsafe at any, there's like risk to it, right? Mm-hmm. There's like, cause how
1: many people made an amends and the person was like, fuck you, I'm never going to forgive you. And then they went out and used over that, which yeah. would make sense, man. That's mm-hmm. heavy. It is heavy. If you're going to do like like reparation therapy mm-hmm. with like a family member, you need a mediator yeah. there. Someone who can step in when things get too much and say, "Hey guys, mm-hmm. let's take a break. Let's stay grounded. Let's mm-hmm. stay in our bodies." People in AA are meeting people at second cup and doing like that's really a that's all that's a lot. Yeah. That's that's risky behavior.
0: Very risky. And I've done it. Like mm-hmm. yeah, like I've done it. I don't do it like much anymore like in public because I just I something changed, right? Yeah, like, if you're doing changed.
1: it authentically, it's just like trauma dumping yeah. in like a, a, a public space with no follow-up afterwards. And some yeah. people don't need follow-up, but some people do. Mm-hmm. Some people need to co-process with somebody who can walk them through it in a safe way.
0: Mm-hmm. For sure. and And I mean, sometimes, I was just thinking of that, sometimes I do get into conversations in public with people that are that are deeper than we intended, Mm -hmm. but that happens, right?
1: And there's also consent on both parts. So the interesting thing is it's once again an inappropriate power dynamic. So when you're coming to somebody as the addict, as the junkie apologizing, they have power over you Mm -hmm. because they're not that. And so there's sort of this idea that you have to take anything that they give you. And I also don't agree with that. Like the idea that addicts should just be like, just sit there while people relentlessly lay into them, I don't think that's productive either.
2: How is that helpful, yeah. Um,
1: yeah, and I think it like comes back to how we take away basic autonomy from people who mm-hmm. use drugs, they don't get to have boundaries, they don't get to say no. Mm-hmm. Or they're seen as like being defiant of the program.
0: Yeah, they're resistant.
1: Yeah, they're resistant. They're just not yeah. surrendering. Yeah. And it's like, no, maybe they're just somebody who advocates in a different way. Like I mm-hmm. have to ask a lot of questions to understand something. Yeah. That always deemed me as disorderly from a mm-hmm. treatment center.
0: Of course. And like I mean that's where the treatment centers can like maneuver people in and out, right? Is that well you're resistant.
1: Yeah, and you can do anything you want to somebody in treatment. Yeah, People have gotten tr- kicked out of treatment for smoking a cigarette in a place they shouldn't have smoked, yeah. which I get. That sucks. They shouldn't have done that. But now they're houseless on the street with no warning. Yeah. That doesn't sound safe. And so we're talking about treatment, and I, I really think we should circle back to forced treatment. Okay, let's do it. Because that's my number one thing right now, okay. the thing that I'm talking the most about. So... Um, it's called the Compassionate Intervention Act, which is a really cute name. They did—they must have got a greeting card person to make that. Um, but yeah. nothing about force and coercion
2: mm-hmm.
1: is um, compassionate. So nope. I refuse to call it that. I yeah. call it forced treatment or forced death. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's going to happen in Alberta. Like oh, yeah. it's no. it, there's there's no point in in us trying to stop it. It's going to happen. Yeah. So all we can do, I think, is be educated about it and try as a community to advocate against it in all Mm -hmm. the ways that we can. And while it's going on, we have to get data about what is happening to these people. Mm Because I hear this conversation a lot, and I think we're missing it. It's not going to be rich white kids who are going to get forced into treatment. We
0: know it's another part of the poor, right?
1: Yeah, it's going to be probably Indigenous, probably at least 54, 60% Indigenous. Mm-hmm. It's going to be the unhoused population, and it is going to be a jail cell.
0: The unhoused, resistant, un, um, treatable.
1: Yes. Right,
0: the ones that the treatment centers won't take. But see, the treatment centers will then open their doors because of the money, right? Well,
1: it's a thing that makes no sense to me. Yeah,
0: it's it's why we can't trust their data, though. Exactly. Yeah.
1: Where are these, be- it's, you know what it's like? It's like when CERB happened uh, mm-hmm. in COVID and all of a sudden the government just gave everybody $2,000 a month and we were all like, what do you mean? I thought we couldn't do
2: this. Mm-hmm. This
1: is a lot more than people who are getting, who are on um, like ACE or mm-hmm. um, any sort of like medical, like, you know what I'm assistance, saying? Assistance, yeah. Yeah, assistance that way. So how did you just all of a sudden come up with two grand a month for mm-hmm. all of us? Maybe you could keep doing that. Maybe we could have universal income. It sounds like we did, so we have the infrastructure, mm-hmm. but it's the same thing. It's like nobody can get into treatment, you know that. So where are these beds coming from? And that's the other piece that the people who are pro-recovery, my, what I, I'm confused about is that means somebody who wants to go isn't gonna get to go. Like, do they not understand that part of the coin as well? Because what that means now is wait lists will be longer for people who are ready. Mm-hmm. People who aren't ready are gonna be forced against their will, which is gonna cause medical trauma, which is gonna separate them from the medical community even mm-hmm. more. They're going to come out, use, and die. It, 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 I, 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 I'm just blown away that we're even talking about it, you know?
0: Yeah, me too, I'm blown away, and then I think about the, the government, and I'm like, not so blown away, because they are yeah. they are thick.
1: Yeah, uh, I mean, like, I can't even talk about Dina Henshaw being oh. a part of everything now. Like, that's enough to make me just... Well, and I mean, even today, like, we're talking, like, what just happened at Vandu, you know? Mm. With, with, have, did you hear about that? No. So, okay, so there's a group of people out in Vancouver, super cool. Um, excuse me if I don't say this everybody perfectly, so please don't call me out online, but oh, <laughs> basically God. there's a group of people in Vancouver, really cool harm reduction advocates, mm-hmm. and what they do is they buy, um, they buy drugs on the dark web. And they're scientists and they're doctors, and they test it, and they figure out what it really is, Mm -hmm. and then they sell safe supply to the community. Okay. And a bunch of them just got arrested. Mm -hmm. Um, So we're trying to raise money as a harm reduction community to get them out, because what they're doing is providing safe supply to a community that's dying. Mm -hmm. And I'm a really big advocate for that kind of um, support for people. Mm -hmm. Like, I believe in safe supply, safe... And the thing that I think is interesting is we already have safe supply that is totally accepted as a culture. Like, what is alcohol? Yeah. You go to a brewery in a bar, you're at a safe consumption site. Mm-hmm. You get beer from that brewery or bar, and that is safe supply. Yep. It's more expensive to drink at a bar than it is to just buy alcohol and go sit at home. Mm-hmm. Why do people go to a bar? Community, safety, regulation, mm-hmm. support. Yep. You know? So I believe in all of those things. But yes, it's a very sad time in Alberta right now. Mm-hmm. And even sadder in Vancouver to watch our friends who are doing real good work get in a lot of trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, but that I'm really scared. seems to be part
0: of the course, eh? Yeah, it's like, going to get worse. Yeah. Danielle
1: Smith has ruined my name. I might as well change it. I don't want to be Danielle <laughs> anymore.
0: <laughs> Worst
1: thing you can be in my industry.
0: <laughs> what should we call you?
1: I don't know. Not that.
0: (laughs) Anything but. She's really,
1: yeah, I've got to come up with something. But yes, what I'm concerned about with forced treatment is that we have data already about forced Mm -hmm. treatment because we do it to youth. And guess what? It is not successful. No.
0: Unsuccessful from all of my... At all. Everything I've seen about it, unsuccessful.
1: Any of that forced anything Mm -hmm. just results in people having trauma and disconnect from the medical Mm play the medical professionals which is what we talked about with AA Mm -hmm. so I also have experienced intervention style um, Mm -hmm. uh, yeah interventions that have separated me and isolated me from my family and separated and isolated me from medical professions so you know the forced intervention style thought Mm -hmm. and abstinence based programming together for me Mm -hmm. was like a death wish
2: yeah.
1: um, it kept me alone for a really long time when I didn't need to be mm-hmm. it kept me away you know my brother and I didn't speak for a very long time and I am so sad about that mm-hmm. you know we've gotten close in the last couple of years I think he's softened and I think um, we've, we've been able to meet in some common ground mm-hmm. um, but that is harm reduction yeah. that's what harm reduction is mm-hmm. and and what does that do it means that both my brother and I get to have each other in our lives yes you know, And we get to help each other and offer different perspective to one another. And now, today, if I was going through a crisis, I would phone him. Mm-hmm. But for the last 15 years, there's nobody I would have phoned. Yeah. And the difference that having that safety net makes is
0: huge. Oh, it's, it's incredible.
1: And we're separating people from that when we do forced treatment. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I want to say, I, I, I know this is like you guys talk about recovery on this podcast, so I want to talk to the family members right now mm-hmm. who might be seeing this Compassionate Intervention Act and thinking it's a good thing. First, I want to say I understand that. Mm-hmm. There have been times as an outreach worker where I have thought in my head, I wish I could pick this person up, yep. lock them in that closet, and just keep them alive. Yep. So I get that. Yep. I've loved people who are, have have struggled and I have wanted to do the same. Take mm-hmm. it all away, lock them in the house. I get it. I love you for that. That's mm-hmm. so hard. But please talk to families who have done it. And ask them if it helped them long term. Long term. Because maybe you will know where your child is for 30 days. Mm -hmm. But then maybe you won't know where they are for 10 years. Mm -hmm. Maybe there is a disconnect in your family for a decade Mm -hmm. afterwards. Or maybe they come out. They want you to be proud of them. Mm -hmm. They make what they think is a mistake. And they die. Mm -hmm. Because they've lost their tolerance. And they're too afraid to tell anyone they're using again. Yep. They're not using safe consumption sites. They're not pairing yep. in with healthcare professionals, and they're dead. Mm-hmm. So you got thirty days, but now you will never see them again. Yeah,
0: and it's crazy. Mm-hmm. Like, and I, I was uh, when I was well, fourteen, my older brother went into a treatment center in California for cocaine. He mm-hmm. he overdosed and almost died. Right. So my parents freaked out, like mm-hmm. parents do, which mm-hmm. which I get. Totally, I got it. Like like the, the time, older
1: I am, the more I forgive my mama.
0: Of course, right? And, and I, I think we, we start thinking about it in different ways. We can see it differently, right? So we know that they were just trying to help. And But looking back on that, even my parents, they were both like, it was problematic. like, Because all I remember from it as a young kid, a teenager, um, is being condemned, right? Mm-hmm. Being condemned, watching my brother be condemned. And I was just wouldn't, I didn't take it. I was like, "That's fucking bullshit." Mm-hmm. Like he looks sick. Like mm-hmm. he looked really fucking sick. Mm-hmm. And they had, they would. I remember this because we would come in and we'd all sit in these like auditorium, like the family, and we and they'd have all the all the f- kids who were clients up at the front, so we could all stare at them. And like it just seemed awful, mm-hmm. right? And then of course they would be shamed into telling stories. Like mm-hmm. my brother talks about. He's like they told me I had to tell people I used everything.
1: Yeah, and like that, that you don't, we take the consent away from the individual, and that's why I want, we need to be asking and regulating what's happening in these treatment centers, you Mm -hmm. know, I got kicked out of a treatment center because I asked about my care, Mm -hmm. that is my right to ask about my care, you know, and you can do anything you want, like I said to this group of people, and nobody will believe them or care. Mm -hmm. So they have no voice, they have no agency, Mm -hmm. they have no advocacy, so we have to have it for them. Like, because we do know that people get abused and assaulted in Mm -hmm. treatment centers. 100%. And I mean, we're talking in Canada, but God, when I think about what happens in the States, where any guy with a little bit of money can open up one of those weird sober living houses, I have seen some, and I'm sure that happens in in Canada as well, so I've I've talked to some people about it in
0: Vancouver, but... I think it even happens in some of the bigger treatment centers. I
1: completely agree with you. And there's, like, what is the success? rate when they leave so when they leave treatment do they have a social worker when they leave treatment did they have su- safe supportive housing you know like when I left treatment I moved back in with my abusive husband you know so and I didn't disclose that I was experiencing abuse when I was at the treatment center because it didn't feel safe to because I didn't feel heard or listened to by the person that I was working with in the treatment center you know, so ironically, the only person I could be honest with was my abuser. So of mm. course, that's where I went back, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the other thing, too, is when we have these ideas of going in and taking away the rights of drug users, we also have to remember that a drug user's family and support group might not be, a safe, might, might not be safe for them. Yeah. So when we're taking away those decisions and giving them to people, we could be giving them to people who have abused them. Mm-hmm. We could 100%. be giving power back to people who are dangerous. Mm-hmm. And who might use that power in predatory, dangerous ways. Mm-hmm. I worry about that too. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm very scared about that. And I think it's going to happen because people don't understand. And it's going to get dressed up in a mm-hmm. different
0: way. Well, and because when and when humans get afraid, we do stupid things.
1: Total, and not just afraid, but I think guilty. Guilty, yeah. So my opinion mm-hmm. on this is that people don't want to admit that they don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. That for some people, it's not a black and white road. Yeah. For some people, it isn't. They go to a treatment center, they go to a 12-step program, and they get better. I think that's hard for us as a society to admit.
0: Also, that we look at getting better, meaning they're sober. Exactly. Getting better can be a lot of things.
1: A lot of right? things. Because I know
0: people who get better, even if they use or totally. drink or whatever. Like I, I I stopped playing that game like a long time ago, but really when I saw a couple of my really good friends decide to leave the rooms, right? For their own reasons, for really mm-hmm. good reasons, right? And mm-hmm. they're living their life. Mm-hmm. They're fine, like everything's fine. Mm-hmm. So all the things that we were told, that if you leave, you're gonna die. Mm-hmm. like, And don't get me wrong, they may eventually circle back around to do mm-hmm. something that to And
1: as you should with a program that you get to drop into and use when you yeah. want. I went to yoga every single day for two years, a couple years ago. Mm-hmm. I haven't been in months. I'm yep. doing other shit right now. <laughs> that's right. You know, I have other priorities right now. That's right. Things shift, things yep. change. Sometimes we're focusing on growing our professional yep. life. Sometimes we're focusing on growing our relationships. Sometimes mm-hmm. we're focusing on growing ourselves. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we're focusing on surviving.
0: That's right. And you that's know, okay too.
1: it ebbs and flows, mm-hmm. man. Sometimes we also need to stop, you know, yeah. for me, I was going to therapy ever like I when I got diagnosed I I was I, I found it really validating because for me I could never figure out what was going on that was bigger mm-hmm. and so I always made it like a there's something wrong with me. Yeah. So for me I actually found diagnosis was very educational. Too. Um and that's how I have felt up until the last year that I've started to reevaluate some things and think that Maybe I don't love the, maybe I think it would just be better if it was all trauma disorders. Like maybe I'm not, I, I, but I don't have a formed opinion on that yet. Mm-hmm. But yeah, for me, I found it really exciting. And so I dove in, like I was doing every kind of therapy that I could. And then even that became maladaptive. There was a time when I wasn't living anymore. Mm -hmm. I was just, like, observing myself in my house alone. Mm -hmm. And I was kind of agoraphobic, and I wasn't interested in making new relationships. Mm -hmm. And uh, that wasn't a good time either. So Mm -hmm. sometimes you need to take a break from therapy as well, and also just, like, be out there. And And not observe yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I've gained a lot of growth from that as Mm -hmm. well, which really shocked me when I took a break in therapy and actually like allowed my, cause for so long I didn't want to make any mistakes. Mm -hmm. So it was like, okay, I'm not going to get into a new relationship because relationships have been bad for me in the Mm -hmm. past. I'm going to be good this time. But then I wasn't growing, you know, and then I I got to try to have a relationship and Mm -hmm. I got to try to do a healthy thing. And I wasn't great in the beginning and I'm still not always great, Mm -hmm. but I'm getting more out of that than just not doing it at all. And I think that's the thing I worry about with AA too is it's like you can, some people believe you can never go into a room with alcohol. So like miss your sister's wedding if you have to. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, maybe miss your sister's wedding if it's been a week. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe miss your sister's wedding if you just got fired and your dog died and you think, no way can I handle it. I yep. still respect those boundary lines. Mm-hmm. But sometimes there, you should go.
0: Well, and it should be your boundaries. Yeah. Not someone else's boundaries, right? Like I love what's, that. What's real for you is not real for everybody else yeah you know but that but I've noticed that in in the rooms different rooms where going back a bit where they just assume they they presume that everyone starts their sobriety journey at the same point
2: Yeah. right
0: and you and I both know that's not true like that's just not true nobody starts anything at the same point mm-hmm. like, we have I don't know if you remember this during 2020 that commercial that kept coming out it was showing how privilege really worked
2: Mm. Where some people
0: started 100 meters ahead of other people. Mm-hmm. And it was so like poignant, right about that the whole thing is, no, not everybody starts at the starting line, man. Some people yes. are 100 yards ahead already.
1: Yeah, right. Totally. And, and some people have like motorized shoes on. Right, and some exactly. people have no, some people are doing the race naked, barefooted. That's right. That's right. Some people have no legs yep. and they're doing the race. That's
0: right. And, and that's... some people well, can't
1: see the finish line, they're blind. And you it's know okay.
0: it's like it's perfectly it's human. Yeah, right. And I think one of the things that religion in general does is to try to take the human out of the human. Right. Totally. Make us something that we're not.
1: Yeah. It's also a blanket for critical thought.
0: Yeah. You know, it's
1: like just throw the blanket of religion on it. mm -hmm. Just throw the idea that like instead of creating your own, you know, Mm -hmm. like what kind of person do I want to be? What do I think is good? I don't even like the word good anymore. Mm -hmm. But like, how do I want to show up? How do I wanna make people feel, you know? I want people to feel validated and supported. Mm -hmm. That's what's important to me. And I have found that in harm reduction. Mm -hmm. Harm reduction has allowed me to say, wow, that sounds like a really hard thing to experience. Mm -hmm. How would you like me to show up for you? Yeah. What can I do for this?
0: Let me, wait, wait, that's some pretty forward shit.
1: Yeah, let's ask the addict what they want?
0: What can I do for you? I know. As opposed to, you should probably get ready to do for me.
1: Yes. I just spoke to a bunch of the NDP MLAs yesterday. We were doing a harm reduction presentation for them, Mm -hmm. me and some doctors. And I was saying that's why it's so important to talk to people who use drugs when Mm -hmm. you're coming up with solutions. Because in 15 years of navigating the healthcare system, I never had a medical professional say to me, how could I support you? Mm -hmm. That never happened.
0: Yeah, and I'm sure you never went into a 12 step fellowship and had someone go, How can I help you? Be
1: on your knees. Yeah. Be so lucky that you're here. Yeah. And I think we've confused humility and, gr- like, those people are also allowed to be having a rough go, man. It's their first week. Like, I remember my first week in some rooms, like, I'm like, coming off a of heroin I'm like sweating I'm like puking I'm like shitting my pants yeah. and like they want you to go in there and be like thank you so much for letting me be mm-hmm. here what I can I do shall I wash your cars yeah. and I get it but like maybe in the beginning you're not humble maybe in the beginning you're angry and triggered yeah. and scared and focusing on yourself
0: well and maybe the folks that are trying to tell you how to be humble aren't exactly humble either why
1: do they want like what are you a boot why yeah. do you want to have the boot on the neck so bad yeah. Why do you need someone below you to feel like your sobriety is valid? I'm so happy for anybody who chooses recovery, that's great. I'm also happy for my friends who don't. Mm -hmm. And I don't want my friends who are recreational drug users to die anymore because they're not testing their drugs because they're afraid. Mm -hmm. You know how many punk social workers I know that are bumping lines on the weekend that aren't testing them? You know, even in this own like world of ours, people are working in harm reduction Mm -hmm. and not using harm reduction. Mm -hmm. And what does that tell you about stigma? Yeah. You know, I wouldn't go to the safe consumption site in a million years. I would be so worried that somebody from this community would see me Mm -hmm. and know where I was and I just would never go. Yeah. And I work in harm reduction. I advocate for STSs every single day. Yeah. Sorry, those are safe consumption sites in case anyone doesn't know. But yeah, like I'm noticing this, you know, Mm -hmm. I I know people who are not testing drugs who are working in harm reduction. And it's just like the stigma goes so Mm -hmm. deep.
0: Well, and it's that Judeo-Christian stigma that like basically fills our legal system, our recovery system, Mm -hmm. our religious system. Like it's that punitive Mm -hmm. approach, right? It's like, if you don't comply, we can't help you
1: these are good these are bad yeah. you know when people come out of treatment and it's not successful what do we hear they weren't right for the treatment they couldn't do it they weren't enough they didn't show up or maybe the program wasn't fitted for them maybe, yeah, maybe the program it failed
0: it's true because programs fail yeah they don't And work that's for okay everybody. we don't
1: have to say shut you down but we can say let's ask them why it failed and did mm. like what about a focus group? You know, I am mm-hmm. so confused with all these capitalists who don't want to ask drug users what we need. How are you going to give us a product if you don't have a focus group?
0: It's it's all window dressing.
1: Like you want to have an SCS, ask us how we would like it run and mm-hmm. then people will use it. Mm-hmm. You know, I work in in marketing and it's like if we're going to put out a product, I'm going to ask our audience what they like. Mm-hmm. I'm not just going to say like here's something buy like it's not appropriate for what they need. Mm-hmm. We have one safe consumption site in in, in Calgary and they can't inhale, mm-hmm. but everyone's inhaling. Like, when I do outreach, nobody is taking rigs. People mm-hmm. are taking bubbles and pipes, and that's not to demonize rig users. I, mm-hmm. I, I was a, I was an IV drug user, but I just have, have noticed a huge shift in mm-hmm. inhalation. People are choosing to inhale. Most of the poisonings that I'm encountering on a street level are inhalation, mm-hmm. and it's because we are completely abandoning that community. Yeah. It's also telling you how to use. You know, what if you're someone who is injecting and smoking? Mm-hmm. You're going to stay in your house to do it that way because you can't use the way that you want to use. And this is because we don't value the people who live who with lived experience voice. We don't yeah. ask them what we need. We put resources out that fail, and they were always going to fail cuz they don't meet the needs of the community.
0: Yeah, they're not directed, right? Yeah.
1: They're not for no. us. No.
0: It's like a paintbrush. Like it's like And like,
1: how many recreational drug users feel like they can use this SCS? How many of these kids on the weekend who are going to do cocaine for sure tonight are going to go and get their cocaine tested at Schumer? Mm -hmm. I don't think any of them are going to do that. Mm -hmm. So those people should be concerned too, you know? I don't want to miss that. When we talk about the drug crisis, we always talk about the um, vulnerable community, and that's great. I don't want us to stop. Let's talk about them. But we have entered a new world with the toxic drug supply. There is no more casual drug use, I would argue. You know, I have known people in the last year that have died who are recreational drug users, who, you know, use, get a bag every six months mm-hmm. and have died from a hot bag, Yeah, you know, and those are people that sh- we sh- like, the supply is so toxic. Mm-hmm. Please, if you're using drugs, test your drugs. Mm-hmm. No shame. Get test strips. Find places that are safe. I know mm-hmm. there's the drug check-in ban now that AWARE's got going on. Yeah. Great resource. Find out their schedule. Um... Anyone they can, they can
0: come to Community Wise on Tuesdays, right? Yeah, yeah, you
1: can come to Community Wise. Um, I know there's we're, we're we're working on getting maybe like a, a warming mm-hmm. um, sort of thing set up once a week at night here. Like we're working on stuff. We want yeah. to support the community, but mm-hmm. we should be because the supply is so toxic. It should be mandated that people can have easy access to testing their drugs and easy access to safe supply. Mm-hmm. Like, I say bring heroin back, you know? Mm -hmm. I say bring it back and bring it back in a safe way that can Mm -hmm. be distributed by a medical professional Mm -hmm. because I'm so grateful that I'm not using IV drugs in this current situation Mm -hmm. because it's just such a different game. The supply has gotten so dangerous. Mm -hmm. The fentanyl is being laced with benzos. It's being laced with tranquilizer. Mm -hmm. Like, it's just not the same thing as it was. It's getting worse. Mm -hmm. And the numbers we have don't reflect the current situation. Because we don't label drug deaths as drug deaths, sometimes until after a year.
0: Same with alcohol deaths,
1: Well, God, and we would never talk about alcohol deaths. How many kids are going to get alcohol poisoning down the block on 17th Ave? -hmm. You know, I see that as well. We pick and choose what's okay. Like, the other industry that I work in is the craft beer market. Mm -hmm. You know? And we talk about, like, safe communities, and we talk about drug users. But I went to a conference last week, and I said... How many people are drug users? Mm-hmm. Nobody raises their hand. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, okay, but you're all drinking a beer at eleven o'clock. So put mm-hmm. your hand up.
2: Yeah.
1: That's a drug.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And we've just picked in like wine mum culture is like it's acceptable. <clears throat> I'm watching like TV at like four o'clock and there's a joke about how yeah. the the mum is an alcoholic and it's hilarious. Yeah. It's it's bizarre. It's- it- it's It's racist
0: super racist
1: (laughs) and bizarre
0: and and i think that's that's the underlying to me is it's the underlying why was it demonized Mm -hmm. it was deep well we'll just look at cannabis cannabis was demonized because it they they wanted everyone to think that if you smoke cannabis you were going to be raping people Mm -hmm and that it was... In a, psychosis. In psychosis. <laughs> Have you ever seen Reefer Madness? No. I'm, oh my god, it's free on YouTube.
2: <laughs> okay, I'll watch it's, it
0: afterwards. It is an old, an old movie about just how crazy the government, like everybody involved, wanted to like demonize this drug. And oh, that's great. And of course, we, great. we know now that it was because um, it was coming from Mexico predominantly, yeah. and so they were trying to make it a racial thing, mm-hmm. right? And of course... That's what the U.S. did. Mm-hmm. Everything was everything was well. If you do that, like, well, you're gonna be hanging out. You're gonna be robbing people. Mm-hmm. And and I remember. I don't know if you've ever seen Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Yes, of course. Right. The one of the funniest parts is, is the the Elron Bumquist who does the talk for the cops about the drugs. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. This right? is great. It's so <laughs> great. good, right? Yeah. It's like you'd be looking for a rape victim like within ten minutes of smoking this stuff, right? And yeah. It's like, dude, that is so crazy
1: totally like
0: insane
1: totally and it denies who like it, it also denies who the real problem is for those issues right like, typically white men you know what I mean like well, not rapists yeah, yeah like <laughs> it's, it's yeah so it, it is very interesting but it's the same thing where it's like you know people always say like oh weed is the gateway drug yeah. and I also I always say no sexual assault was my gateway drug you know trauma was my gateway yeah. drug you know being preyed on as a young woman was my gateway drug
0: that's it wasn't exactly because it. I
1: smoked weed yeah
0: it was because it was
1: the pills I was taking in my rich parents friends kids, kids, mm-hmm. the friends of my parents in their medicine cabinets yeah. it was those drugs that got me to a different place mm-hmm. it was those opiates that's where my stuff started it started mm-hmm. in a medicine cabinet of your mom at your mom's house yeah because nobody in my world was talking about it mm-hmm. so yeah I think there's a lot of there's a lot of that and picking and choosing and yeah. what's okay and picking and choosing who can use drugs and who can't like
2: yeah.
1: I always say I'd love to see the numbers on the UCP how many of them use coke on the weekend mm-hmm. how many of those politicians have a bigger problem than anybody
0: there's absolutely no universe where they tell us the truth
1: of course <laughs> of course they <laughs> right? can't and you yeah. know I, I talk a lot lately I've been talking to the NDP a lot because they're an easy sell right they mm. want to hate the UCP but I don't really believe they'll do better You know, I look at what's happening in Vancouver and I think they're just doing like the same thing as they're doing here But they're just being a little quieter about it. It's
0: window dressing. It's a
1: little bit more polite, you know But I don't really think anybody is standing up and supporting drug users. Mm -hmm. I don't see it anywhere
0: It's it's like the the dying. It's like the last um, Hill for some people Mm -hmm. we're dying on this hill Mm -hmm. and I've heard them talk about it like when when we talk when they made it decriminalized right Mm -hmm. in Vancouver Mm -hmm. for a period of time Mm -hmm. Um, and of course the right, even just a little bit right of center, are like, no, it's just, it's enabling. It's like, look, I I understand that we're dealing with this enabling term that comes from way back when Mm -hmm. books were written without any sort of backup of science, Mm -hmm. right? When these- Well, we
1: have experts, we don't listen to them. Yeah. That's what blows my mind and is so honestly disappointing these days in harm reduction is we have data, we have scientific evidence, like this isn't an opinion, like we have this data and we don't listen to it and we do the opposite of it. And, like, nothing I'm saying is radical. That's what was Mm -hmm. so shocking for me when I started doing this work. I'd always been deemed as a super radical person. People Mm -hmm. were always like, oh, Danielle has super radical beliefs. And then I started actually doing the work, and I was like, nope, everything I believed in was 100% true. The police are corrupt, and they're killing people, and Mm -hmm. they're not just killing people, but they're treating people like shit. Mm -hmm. You know, as a drug user, don't phone the police. Like, I want to advocate for that in the community. Phone a harm reduction service. Mm -hmm. Phone HOPE team. You know, please don't phone the police. Mm -hmm. Like, they should be your last resource. Because I've seen the police ticket people who are passed out. I've seen them leave tickets on their passed out body and not check in and not do Narcan. Mm -hmm. Like, it's... Especially in, in Alberta. Yeah. I, I've and, and you know, people say to me, oh, Danielle, they're burnt out. They're burnt out. Have have compassion. And I do have compassion, but if you're so burnt out in your job that you're being violent and aggressive with a, with a community of people, quit.
0: Yeah.
1: Go on a medical leave. Yeah. Deal with your shit. Mm-hmm. But if you're kicking people over to do rescue breathes on them, kicking them in the ribs, spitting in their face, throwing out their home. I, I was the other day... Uh, there's a girl that I'm close with in the community, and her mom died. She overdosed mm-hmm. next to her. They were using together in a little encampment down by the river. Mm-hmm. The mom died, so they called the medics. The medics come, the police come. The, they determined that the mom can't be saved. Mm-hmm. And then immediately after, they throw out all of her stuff in front of her daughter. So they just roll up the tent, roll up. So now this girl has watched her mom die, lost her mom, had her home thrown out, and then had all of her mom's belongings thrown out.
0: Because she was a drug user? Because she
1: was a drug user, oh, yeah. and do you think if this girl got up and started screaming and yelling, do you think that would make sense? I think so. Mm-hmm. If I just watched my mom die and then someone threw my house out, I would be losing my mind. I'd probably mm-hmm. hit them. Yep. So that behavior makes complete sense to me. Mm-hmm. Of course. A- and then, do you think she's ever going to want to utilize the police if she needs them? No.
0: Well, and then what the law enforcement does is they turn around, and if you're if you're non-compliant, then they add tickets to you. Yeah, and what does charges. non-compliant mean? It just means you're not doing what they want.
1: Exactly. Yep. And, you know, we were talking, I was at the. Um, I was at a conference a couple of weeks ago, and we were talking about how one way we as, like, outreach workers, social workers can show up for people is by bearing witness. Mm-hmm. So we can be an advocate by bearing witness. Mm-hmm. And I love that, yeah. but I've also seen that not work at all. Mm-hmm. So, like, that was a big thing that I had when I started doing this kind of work was I would do things like film the police when they were engaging Mm -hmm. with my community because I felt like that was what was needed to advocate for the person. Um, And it's also totally my legal right. But when I did those things, what happened? I started getting complaints from police. Mm -hmm. I started getting in trouble at work. You know, I became a target of those police officers. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I I remember the bike cops downtown, they would pull their sunglasses off and wink at, at me as they rode by just antagonizing Mm me, you know, because I had been vocal about not agreeing with their treatment. Mm -hmm. So, and then also a point that a friend brought up to me is that might not help the houseless person either Mm -hmm. because now you brought the cop up and now he might be more of an asshole because you've challenged him. (coughs) He he might be harder on your client. (laughs) They have to get in the wagon with them Mm -hmm. afterwards. And maybe they get beat because of you saying, treat them better. Mm
0: -hmm. So... At, at the same time, we can't stop <coughs> trying to be there, right? And we, we're we having it happen right now with two of our activists in Calgary, right? Mm-hmm. That are just like constantly being hounded by the cops, right? Yeah. And, and you can see it, like, um, from from my perspective, I can see it plain as day. This is just like a hate, slander thing that they're doing, right?
1: They hate addicts. Oh, God. They well, think that they're useless. They think that they're... They hate them.
0: They hate... Any, the the idea is is the system hates any opposition so much that it will in full force send out its <coughs> armada to mm-hmm. get everyone back in compliance, right? And like it it burns my arse now in hindsight. I used to be a special constable, like a long really? time. Really? And Wow, I, things
1: were going so well. <laughs> I know, right?
0: Kidding. I I I quit for these Good reasons, for you. right? Good for you. But I quit for these reasons. It was Very obvious to me there was nothing good happening there, like for Mm -hmm. me and for the people that I was working with. It was just one of those things where the limits of that, I started to see exactly what I was doing. And I was levying fines on people who couldn't afford to pay Mm -hmm. them. I was levying fines on people who didn't have a place to sleep. Mm
1: -hmm. And how many of them were Indigenous? Uh, I would
0: probably say... More than half? Probably more than half. Yeah, Yeah. 100%. And like, um, it was one of those things where I just... Was gradually waking up to the fact, right? That I was contributing to this problem, not helping, right? And um, as a, the person that I am, I just couldn't do it anymore. Like it Good was. For you. Please.
1: And that would be the response of a healthy, well person. I would. So say. that's why when everyone says it's not all cops are bastards, yeah. it's just they're not understanding what we're saying. Mm-hmm. If I went to work on Monday and my boss shot a black person in the head, yeah. I would say, whoa, I don't think I can work here anymore. Yeah. No, <laughs> I wouldn't say I'm going to continue to work here. Yes. And so I worry about the fact that we're not checking into the mental health of police officers. Mm-hmm. Like, I hate to advocate for them in any way, but I am. You know, I, I talk to you a... You have to. I talked to a cop the other day who was having a debate with me about how they're safe, and I was saying to him, do you guys do psychological checks? And he went, yeah, of course, when they start. And I said, okay, cool, you guys always bring that up. Mm-hmm. Do you do them six months in? Do you do them every year? Do you do them after somebody experiences an incredibly traumatic experience on the job? Do you force them to go on a mental health leave when they do? Do they have to receive compassionate training? Do they have to receive domestic violence training? Okay, so no, you're not do like... Uh, people need to be reassessed when they're experiencing trauma all of the time. Oh, yeah. Because, of course, you would have an internal bias, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're being attacked by somebody in your small world, maybe now you hate all people that are like that. Mm-hmm. And I don't think you're a bad person if you're like that. I think mm-hmm. that's a natural human reaction, and we're not checking into their mental health. And I'm concerned that some of them are very unwell.
0: Oh, and, and I can tell you very unwell. Like, I... So, part of my journey was to... So when I quit working as a special constable, part of why I quit was because I was told about some police that were doing some things, and mm-hmm. so I turned them in. I was Good told about you. some stuff, and I turned them in. But it obviously put a target on my of back, and um, and that's okay, but because mm-hmm. I did what I know was right, still know that it was right. Um, I have no regrets. However, it was interesting that as time went on um, in, in my journey here in sobriety, I was given the opportunity to be a chaplain with them with CPS, wow. right, and because my dad was a preacher, like, th- there was a long history of my dad's a preacher? Was a preacher, he passed away in March. Wow, but, um, lots of
1: religious trauma there, hey? So much. Can't so imagine.
0: It, it's taken me years to unravel a lot of that, and to the point where now it doesn't really matter, right, it's like I don't have any responsibility yeah. to You've it.
1: deprogrammed that part.
0: Totally, right? that part so far, um, but anyway, I went and I thought, okay, I've already turned cops in for doing shitty stuff, right? But of course, my understanding has grown. And so I realize well, those cops did shitty things because things were shitty for them. I'm assuming. Yeah. I'm assuming they must have been. I'm just assuming that because I could not do something like that if I'm well. Yeah. No,
1: I do understand the nuance of like, it's hard when you start to look into philosophical things more. Like everyone's obviously doing the thing they think is right. It gets read of the bad guys in your brain, which yeah. can be a harder journey. Mm-hmm. Because, yeah, I mean, clearly something happened.
0: Something happened, but that's neither here nor there, because what they did was wrong still. Totally. Right? Bang and so, on. And so I, I decided to go back to try to be of use, to be like this whole chaplaincy thing was supposed to be like, I, and I always said right from the start, I'm just a social worker. That's all mm-hmm. I said. I'm not a preacher. I'm not. That's not my shit. I'm not going to fucking convert anybody. Matter of fact, the first time one of the members came to me and was talking about, like, this God stuff, I was like, whoa, dude. (laughs) Like, that's far out, man, but good on you. But it was one of those things where I just, I couldn't do it anymore because there was no real change, right? And so, like, just going, don't get me wrong, I I have friends, one of my best friends is a police officer, Mm -hmm. right? But we were friends before that. So, and he's not a fucking psycho. Yeah. Right?
1: Yeah, and of course, right? But,
0: it's like you said, if I showed up one day yeah. and he had just randomly shot somebody, I'd probably be like, dude, I don't know if we can hang out.
1: Yeah. Like, if I came into this podcast and you started saying that, like, I don't know, some crazy white nationalist take or something, like, <laughs> I would just leave, man. Yeah. I wouldn't be like, no, let's try to see, you know, maybe. No, I would just leave. Yeah. And so it's confusing that there isn't more of a stand. Mm-hmm.
0: And I'd I'm, like to see that. I would too. And and, and that's I, I quit that, by the way. I yeah, quit that. good for you. Um, it was just one more of those unraveling of the Christianity stuff, the mm-hmm. religious trauma, really what it was. And part of why I quit, though, was because as soon as I became openly queer, mm. so I'm the only non-Christian and an openly queer chaplain.
2: Wow. Out of all the
0: others who are older, straight, white people, whether it's Maybe. men or women, well that's the whole room. Right. They could yeah. be
1: very repressed.
0: Yeah. And but it was such a strange feeling to be in there once I was open. I, Can, I
1: cannot imagine.
0: It was awful. I'm not gonna lie to yeah, you. It I was so imagine. stressful. Um, stressful because you know that there's like people in there that preach hate against you. Totally. Right? And then gradually it just wore me out, right? I just couldn't do it anymore. Um, and because it wasn't my mission.
1: Yeah. Right? When, I, And they would
0: talk about being chaplains, I'm like, nah. You don't
1: need to unnecessarily suffer.
0: Yeah, there's no For something you didn't believe in. No, and and like the fact that, you know, uh, this was one of those things that you probably experienced this too, because if you were connected with the service, you probably have gone through some of this stuff. But it's like the window dressing, right? It's Mm -hmm. like, so they're doing this letter of affirmation, and it took two years to get a letter done. And all the letter would say, the chaplains had to sign. All it would say was, we will help anyone regardless of what they believe in. Whew. So you have to get people to sign this letter. Because, why? Because there was a committee that found out some of these chaplains work for churches that are conversion therapy. Mm-hmm. Okay. So then I start learning this. Then we're in the room and I start learning which of these chaplains actually does hate me. Like, wow. legitimately thinks I have no place on this earth. Yeah. Or that my place is because I'm sick. That yes. I need to get well. Yes. And in order to get well, I need to find Jesus.
1: And that is almost more offensive. I would almost rather a motherfucker hate me to my face yeah. than give me that. Oh, yeah. And that's the AA thing that I'm
0: talking about. Yeah. The sicker than sicker than me. Yeah. Oh, you're
1: sicker than me and I give you compassion.
0: There's like an actual prayer yes. in AA that's, that talks, it's a resentment prayer that totally. talks about oh, they only did it because they're sick. Yeah. And it's like, who the fuck are you to yeah. tell me someone yeah. else is sick?
1: And it's the same thing. And I see a lot of that. A lot of that, like, I worry about that with academics as mm-hmm. well, where it's, like, above them, you know? Like, how many times have I been in a room with a social worker who has said to me, like, and I know they're trying to be helpful, but they're saying, like, just think about it. All this trauma made you resilient, and now you're so resilient. And I just wanna kill them. Like, I don't need to be grateful for my trauma. I don't need to be happy that it, and it actually didn't make me resilient. I'm just, this is just, I'm just me. Like, I'm, you know, and I'm not grateful for it. And I don't have to spin it as a positive. I hate that toxic positive Mm. uh, wellness culture. I hate it. It is so privileged. It is so racist. You know, Mm. I I used to be a yoga teacher and I was a trauma informed yoga teacher. Mm. And I put a lot of time and effort into that. And I had to walk away from the wellness world. Because it's it it, it it is so privileged, and it is creating the idea that anybody can get well if they just like manifest and be positive. And mm-hmm. it you shouldn't be positive about everything that happens to you. Anger's a teacher. Fear's yeah. a teacher. Feel those too.
0: However, to not feel anger and fear is very Christian. Very Christian. Right. Because if you have faith, if you have the proper amount of faith, you don't feel those. Yeah. Things.
1: Because God has it. Yeah. So anything that takes us away from our natural responses, yeah. I don't think is true wellness. Yeah. True wellness is when somebody hurts you saying, that really hurt. I'm really hurt by yeah. that. What and do having, I need to do to be safe?
0: That's right. And having the, the wellness comes in when you're able to articulate.
1: Totally. Right? Yeah. That's all the wellness that's is. It. It's not that you're not feeling sad. Right. It's that you're saying to your partner, hey, you know that thing you just said to me in the kitchen five minutes ago? Mm-hmm. It actually really hurt my feelings. And now I'm thinking about it and I'm kind of mad at you. Mm -hmm. Is that how you really feel? Yeah. That's wellness. Wellness isn't that nothing anyone says anything to me Mm -hmm. affects me because I am a higher being and I don't care about others. Yes, you do.
0: I have gratitude.
1: You should care about others. Be in your body, mm man. Have an opinion about something. Feel something. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. That was part of, I think, honestly, as we're talking about this, like this is, like, you're amazing, first of
1: all. <laughs> I know. I feel bad. I'm like, I don't no, know what your time limit is for I, this. <laughs> I have no
0: time limit. Um, but this is amazing. I, I just, there's, oh, there was something right on the tip of my tongue, too. And it was, it was in Wellness line. Wellness
1: culture, separating you from self. Yeah,
0: it's all of those it's things. It's all about that. It's, oh, yeah, it was the gratitude about what we've been through. And you know what? I'll be honest with you. I'm not grateful I was abused as a child. Yeah, and you don't have to be. Yeah, and I'm not grateful that as a 49-year-old man, I still want to kill myself because yes. of yes right
1: that is so valid and i'm
0: not grateful for it and, no and nor nor and would you'd be I, fucked if you were i would think so
1: that would be unhealthy i'd be trauma bonded to something i would
0: think so because it's like how how are you getting me to turn this frown upside down when this isn't a fucking frown that came from nothing this mm-hmm. isn't like a, a random thing it was like 10 years of my childhood where i don't even remember and you deserve better it. we all do and right. you're allowed
1: to be angry that you yeah. didn't get better,
0: and and allowed to be angry that it still affects me. Allowed of to be like hurt by it still. Of course, you know. Um, and it was what reminded me of that was a few years ago. I was in an, a relationship that was difficult. And
2: yeah,
0: came out of that, um, but I was triggered during it a couple times, and it just like sent me right back to my childhood. Mm-hmm. And of course, my instinct is to say, well, "No, I'm fine," mm-hmm. and so I did,
2: mm-hmm. but I
0: wasn't fucking fine. It was. One trigger, and then a big, a big trigger, and then another one, and then another one. And then I was done. Like, mm-hmm. I was in a uh, funk, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I couldn't get out of it. But a lot of it was because I kept telling myself I wasn't in it. Yes. Because I couldn't go to my friends. Yeah. Right? I have I have friends I could talk to, but my friends in, like, the recovery, mm-hmm. right? There, There's that narrow view mm-hmm. of how to handle these things. And it's like... I, I can only be myself. I can't force people to do it, but I, I, I don't want to be grateful for that.
1: Yeah. I think there's a lot of disassociation that is happening that is being portrayed as healing. Like I remember when I was was teaching yoga, I was a trauma-informed yoga teacher, I'm in this wellness community, blah, 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 Mm -hmm. blah, blah. Everyone around me is telling me I'm doing so great. You know, I wasn't drinking, I wasn't using drugs, everyone was so happy. Mm -hmm. And I had a crippling eating disorder, like just the most horrific eating disorder that was being validated by everyone around me every day saying how great I looked. And I didn't feel a thing nothing i had no feelings at all and i i look back on that time period as actually the most unhealthy time Mm -hmm. of my life the time that i was being praised for being this like health and wellness guru and i was so disconnected from my own self and i i see that so much like you know in these extreme modalities of health and wellness like hot yoga where it's like push yourself to your extreme like Actually, I don't want to. I want to do movement that feels like safe and loving mm-hmm. to my body. I don't, want to, I don't want to move from a place of like restriction and punishment, mm-hmm. you know? And I, I was teaching these yoga classes to these people and I'm like, they hate themselves right now. Mm-hmm. They are doing this from like I could feel the energy in the room and it was just like pure self-hatred. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't feel good for me. Okay. I think wellness is living in your body as a whole. Mm-hmm. And feeling the whole experience of things, the whole experience, the whole gamut, all of the emotions, and and I think so much of the wellness world separates you from that. It's like make everything a positive, make everything a gratitude list. I worry about that.
0: Well, and I do too. Like, and this problem maybe it has to do with the fact that we both have accepted our diagnosis Mm -hmm. and accepted the fact that it's been. I don't know about you, but for me, it's been very helpful to just accept it. Super transformational right? for me. Yeah. For me. Big time. Me too. Yeah. It's like I got a new brain, which yeah. is really strange, right? When all of a sudden it's like, okay, it's not as painful anymore. Totally. Right? Because there's like an acceptance and stuff. Um, yeah, it's just so detrimental, right? To be open about that in order to allow other people to be open, right? And that was mm-hmm. one of the things. Like, I've taken flack for our podcast because I'll talk, tell the truth about how where I come from and stuff like that, because I don't know how else to do it. Yeah. Like, there's only, you can only be authentic.
1: I feel the same way, and, like, I think there's sometimes an over-policing in this space. Mm -hmm. Like, even today, I'm sitting here thinking, like, oh, no, I've said the word addict several times. Mm -hmm. I'd prefer to say the word drug user, you know? So it's like we always have goals, right? Mm -hmm. As an advocate, I would love to show up here and sit in this chair and say everything right. But when I'm authentically going off, I sometimes make mistakes with language. And it's important, Mm -hmm. and I'm working on it. But I think we have to give people the grace to grow in this industry too, you know? It's like, I think the same way that we have the AA people who think they're better, Mm -hmm. we have that in harm reduction too, right? Where it's like, I do outreach 17 days a week and in the middle of the night alone. (laughs) Yeah. Cool, man. I'm so stoked if that feels good for you. Mm -hmm. That wasn't safe for me. Yeah. That wasn't, that didn't have a longevity for me. Yeah. I'm new. I'm still taking up space. I'm still learning. Mm -hmm. Allow me to learn without condemning me. Yeah. And like in a perfect world, you know, it's also about meeting people where they're at too. You know, I love the term poisoning over overdose. Mm -hmm. I think that's much better. But sometimes when you're talking with like the regular public, they need to hear overdose a couple of times. Because
0: they don't understand what poisoning is. Because they don't
1: know what you mean. So I try to use them interchangeably now. But it's Mm -hmm. like we're all learning and we're all growing. I would love to see all of us get to be more of a team mm-hmm. you know I think there's a lot of division in harm reduction yeah. and I don't think that's anyone's fault I think it's lateral violence mm-hmm. I think there's very limited resource available yep. so
0: we're all fighting for the resource well and all fighting against abstinence programs.
1: totally yeah. one of us is gonna get funded yeah. do you think we're gonna be friends <laughs> if I know that my competition mm-hmm. is gonna take the only grant and then I can't pay my staff mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of fighting amongst harm reduction and I really wanna see now more than ever us work as a team and find common ground Mm -hmm. because when we fight that way, we make harm reduction look like what the UCP wants it to look like. Emotional, irrational, separated, violent, Mm -hmm. argumentative. I want us to show up and be like, no, we're a loving front and Mm -hmm. we wanna support people and we're all learning and growing
0: together. And those are the same things that people from the 12-step fellowship say, right? And the, the difference, one of the things that I've I, I noticed about the UCP is their lack of understanding, obviously, about the 12, oh, most things. But recovery specifically, right? Mm-hmm. Like the, the idea that the 12-step fellowships aren't harm reduction based is absurd. Mm-hmm. Like it's in the literature. Mm-hmm. You're welcome back anytime. Mm-hmm. Like you can drink every day and mm-hmm. still come. Mm-hmm. Like it's in the goddamn literature.
1: But it's not being practiced.
0: It's not being practiced and it's not being like um, talked about. Like mm-hmm. that that's what it is. But there's a, and I mean, I, the more I study, the, like I was saying, the less I'm kind of connected to it, right? Because it's like, it's kind of like studying religion.
1: It's also boring and written bad.
0: Yeah, it's. The
1: big Por- book is awful.
0: Yeah, it's pretty bad.
1: If you're gonna be, if you're gonna read one book in the next five years, please yeah. don't make it the big book, man.
0: Well, not just not alone, <laughs> right? Like, jeez, yeah.
1: it's dry and uninteresting. Well, it's not even profound.
0: And the the science is outdated.
1: There is no science.
0: Yeah. Well, the the Dr. Bob, the Dr. Bob letter is what they consider science.
1: Yeah, and I mean, he yeah. just wrote that in his diary. I
0: know. <laughs> it, it it is so to me, it's so crazy that there's still like, oh, it, oh, god, I could just talk about that all day.
1: I know, I'll I know. Just leave that I alone. it's so funny. I thought the same thing on the way over here. I was like, I bet we're going to talk about 12 steps mm-hmm. and I I we probably could have done the whole thing on the 12 step just we because yeah. I think it's a really important conversation. There's not a lot of it out there and that should tell you something as well.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It does read a little cult-like to me it's and a cult-ish. little a little like like I remember when I first started speaking negatively about 12 step programs, being genuinely afraid mm-hmm. about what that would look like for me mm-hmm. because they they are very aggressive about people who don't agree with like they mm-hmm. would probably say that I have no recovery, I have nothing and and 20 year old Danielle couldn't have heard that. Like yeah. I'm lucky enough now that like that kind of controversy doesn't bother me. Mm-hmm but I can understand why people don't speak out about AA. Yeah,
0: because it's very, well you're not it's wrong. It's very dogmatic. Yeah, very much so, and very cultish. Like.
1: Yes, and and how that also impacts, like the interesting thing, it, just one quick little thing here, my family doctor was a member of AA. Mm. I won't out her by name, I would never do that, mm, but sure. I saw her in a meeting in my late 20s, and the funny thing is, my mental health was completely undiagnosed for all of my teens and my early 20s because my family doctor preached sobriety only. Mm. And my mom and I, we've talked about this later mm. on in life, were like, why did it take me so long to get a diagnosis? Yeah. I had very obvious signs. I was self harming regularly and openly. I just really fit the bill in a really obvious way. And I, mm. my mom said that she asked my doctor, she said to my doctor, do you think there's something else going on besides the addiction? And my doctor was like, no, she just won't surrender to the program. Yeah. So I wonder how much harder I struggled because of her personal bias.
0: I, I would imagine exponentially harder.
1: Nobody did a psych eval yeah. on me until I was like 28.
0: Well, and we're, we're talking about locking kids up, right? In, yeah. In treatment, like we have ARC here, we have some other ones that you can get forcibly confined in. And I've yet to meet families that come out of there mm-hmm. that are like super stoked right mm-hmm. like there's and the kids that come out of there totally other story remember
1: right? when we had arc
0: yeah well it's still here
1: oh it is yeah it's still here why do i always think it's gone away because it should be because it should
0: be gone away god well, well the the, the arc story is interesting because it connects back to when my brother was in treatment in the states oh. because those guys came up here and brought Ark. Here.
1: Yeah, I mean, I know probably 10 people from my adolescence that are dead that went to ARC yeah. and died very shortly after getting out of Ark.
0: It's, it's tragic, right? It's and really I, tragic. It, and what, God, I thought it was gone. I know, I know. It's I like, just
1: wanted to believe that in my head. <laughs> of course <laughs> The power did. of denial. This is what the UCT do. That's what they they do. tell themselves a fact and then they start saying it.
0: <laughs> Sorry, no, so ARC is still a thing.
1: Geez, okay. Yeah, in my head it must have been gone because it's yeah. so awful.
0: Well, and, and it's so, it's so, on the one hand, I get it. Like we were talking about, like parents and their kids. They want to protect I get their it. kids. I totally get it. I just don't think that's what's happening. Mm-hmm. I think in the in the instant, instantly, yes, the kid's safe mm-hmm. for a period of time, right?
1: Safe, but not, not being traumatized. Well,
0: yeah, let, yeah, let's, let's right? qualify that. When we say safe, we just mean life safe. Housed.
1: Their house. Yeah, you know where they are.
0: Yep, you know where they are. They're not They don't, they possibly, hopefully don't have access to their dangerous drugs that they're using. Um, But safety comes in like many different forms. And I'm glad you pointed that out because I don't believe it's emotionally safe for anyone.
1: I agree. Yeah.
0: And I've been there a few times. I've spoken there. I've I've done funerals there for kids. Um, And I don't believe that it's safe for everybody, well, first and of all.
1: What's the success rates? Can we know, can we look at the data? Yeah, I don't know. Exactly, why not? Yeah,
0: yeah. it's it'd be interesting. But Any I,
1: program that's proud of themselves is talking about it. Well, why do we never hear data?
0: Well, and, and when you do hear data, it's all like prescribed data for grants, right? So mm-hmm. you and I both know how that works.
1: You can say anything you want for a grant. That's right. And people are. <laughs>
0: and, and people do, right? And, yeah. And, Fair enough, I guess.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, it works sometimes in my favor mm-hmm. when people are doing really radical, cool things under yeah. the guise of other things. But yeah, I think sometimes people are doing nothing.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I used to work for a program called The Class, which is where they just put all of the mentally ill kids together into like one room mm-hmm. and they just are there. Um, I used to do yoga for that program and it's all over the city in different schools. Okay. and it's basically an unregulated program, so each teacher can run it how she wants. So some teachers are doing really cool things with these kids. Yep. Some teachers are having them sit on their iPads the entire day and teaching them nothing. So it's just like, once again, about lack of regulation for vulnerable yeah. people. Who's looking into what's happening? Who's looking into what's being provided? Mm-hmm. Who's looking into if the resources are working?
0: Yeah, and that's a good question, right? Like, And also, who, who are... What's the training like for the people being employed by these centers?
1: And the follow-up mental health care. Yeah.
0: yeah. And, like, not only for um, for the clients, but for the staff. Yeah. Because right? one of the things I do a lot of is counsel with, like, frontline workers. Totally. So a lot of my clients are frontline workers that they don't feel they can talk.
1: No, my homies are hurting. Yeah. Like, I, I remember when I experienced my first poisoning, which is super different when you're sober. Mm-hmm. I've experienced a lot of overdoses when I was using, yeah. but it's a different relationship when you're, like, on the job and you're not using that that mm-hmm. day. And I, my, I found it really, really, really hard. And I was talking to my friend who's been a social worker for, like, 10 years, like, really, really, yeah. really good social worker. And I said to him, I said, man, how do you deal with it? And he just said, I drink. Mm-hmm. He just looked at me, just pointed his day and said, I yeah. just get fucked up. Yeah. And that, for me, is no longer an option. And mm-hmm. so I was like, wow, I'm going to have to figure out a different thing. But I think frontline workers are really in need of support right now. Big
0: time. Big, but like you said, there's lots of people who know and still take the risks.
1: Yeah, right? and you know what? I'm so yeah. grateful because he's probably an amazing social worker and he probably yeah. provides so much great care. Yep. And I'm so sorry that his system is failing him. Like, I'm never putting the onus back on the the person. It's always the, the, the system for me. Yeah, you know?
0: well, and I think the longer that we're around and especially working in the field, you can see how faulty the system is. Completely. You don't even have to, I mean, but first of all, you have to be removed from your organization so that you can talk about it. It's
1: the only reason why I can. right? I don't work for an organization, so mm. I can come here and speak candidly. If yeah. I did, I wouldn't. And that's why I take so much speaking because I can say those things mm. that the people who are working at organizations cannot. Yeah. They want to do overdose prevention sites. Mm. They want to respond to inhalation needs they cannot how many you know it was so beautiful for me to start working with doctors who are harm reduction friendly to see that those people exist Mm. but man those people are hurting yeah they are watching their clients lose their rights every day and they can't give medical care what an ethical conundrum Mm. how do you not just start breaking the law
0: well i think that's what happens good for
1: them that's what i say good for them Good to my friends out at Vandu. Well, Good to and, all of these people who are doing radical acts of self-love and yeah. love for the community.
0: Yeah, like, honestly, kudos to them. Kudos to you. Uh, Thank you so much for coming in. You're I, welcome. I don't want to keep you all day. Like, no,
1: I know. We this won't. This has been amazing. But I'm sure we'll talk again.
0: I hope so. Yeah, I like, really part two. So. Stay yeah. tuned. I would love that. Um, because I know that this is, like, it's getting dynamic, right? Like, out out here. Mm-hmm. With, like, honestly, I'm just so grateful there's all these new... And I know they're not new, like brand new, but newer in terms of the field of yeah. helping, having more of these harm reduction groups, more um,
1: people who use drugs employed by them, hundred
0: percent. Because let's do it. It doesn't make anyone bad, man.
1: Nothing about us without us.
0: No, that's ask right. my
1: community what we need. We'll let you know. That's Listen.
0: Right. And that's that's a good point in terms of another reason why I left CPS was because like the last straw for me was, and I, I don't know. There's probably many straws. If I say the last straw, it's probably like the second to last. But it was literally when they did uh, LGBTQ2S, uh, LGBTQ training for the chaplains. And they had one of the chaplains who's an ally do it instead of asking me to do it. The only queer person in the room. Whoa! Right? I know, but they couldn't see it, no, right? No, of course and, not. And of course to I the couldn't... ally! I couldn't say nothing because wow. it's like I'm the only one. Well, then
1: you're the hysterical other.
0: Then I'll then I'll be the queer guy who got all bent yeah. out of shape because yeah, he right. be, he 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 yeah
1: yep. he's just he hates all straight people.
0: So instead what I decided to do was leave. I was like, you know what? I can see that I'm not needed here, so I'm just going to yeah. go. Because I'm tired of being in places where I'm not wanted. Yeah. Right? And so I'm now making concerted efforts to be in places where I know that I'm wanted. Not only wanted, but accepted for who I am. Love that. Right? That's a it's so great cool. great
1: great place to end it. Yeah. Fuck the cops. Go to spaces you feel safe. Leave spaces you don't. Surround yourself with people who are safe to you and mm-hmm. feel your feelings.
0: Fucking A. I love it. Yay! Thank you so much.
1: You're welcome.